Hello everyone, this is Jan Barris with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to be talking to, uh, I guess I have to say, a very old friend. Both of us are very old, and we've been friends for a long time, in fact, the greater part of our lives, yep. since we met back in 1974. Our guest today is Tom Gold, Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's one of those few academics who hasn't been a nomad. He got a terrific job right out of graduate school, and he's still there. That's right. So, Tom, we are so pleased to have you here because your professional life has been very much entwined with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. It has. And we'd just like to start out, this is a fairly new series that we have where we talk to people about their lives, their involvement with China, and sort of along with that, their involvement with the committee. So first of all, what got you interested in China, being an Ohio boy in the middle of the country, and a Jewish boy, so you didn't have missionaries in your background? No missionaries. No. Um, <clears throat> uh, as an undergraduate at Oberlin College in the fall of 1966, as a freshman, I took a course on Asian history, and my professor had lived in China in the 30s and 40s, and regaled us with extremely interesting stories about life in China, and again, as somebody from Ohio who'd really never, hadn't, definitely never been out of the country before, this was really enthralling and engaging. And Oberlin had a long history of missionary tradition uh, with China, and offered Chinese language, which in the 60s was extremely rare mm -hmm. at a liberal arts college. It was mostly the preserve of the large research universities. So a group of seven or eight of us dared each other to take Chinese. <laughs> and so I did, and I had studied other languages, but had never used them uh, never been abroad, never used the language. It was just something I did in, in, in school. Uh, and Chinese seemed as more impractical than any language I had ever studied, but I just loved it from day one. And that's what got me into the study of China. Uh, and after I graduated from college, I had what's called the Oberlin Shanxi Memorial Association Fellowship, uh, where I taught English for two years at Donghai University in Taiwan. And that confirmed my interest in committing to a career in Chinese studies and also academics. I really enjoyed teaching. And I came back from Taiwan and I went to Harvard and got a master's in regional studies East Asia. <clears throat> and it was there that uh, I started working with Ezra Vogel of the sociology department, basically the godfather of the study of Chinese society in, in sociology departments. And it was my first year at Harvard, 73-74, that he asked me if I would be interested in working as an interpreter for martial arts wushu delegation coming from China. And why did he think you would want to do something like well, that? Well, he called me one night in my dorm room, and he said, you studied martial arts when you were in Taiwan, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I'm not any good. And he said, your Chinese is pretty good, isn't it? And I said, well, you know, it's not the worst, but, you know, there weren't that many people anyway. So then he said, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations is bringing this martial arts group. Would you want to work as an interpreter? And I had been in Taiwan when uh, Ping Pong came Shenyang acrobat, so I, I've not, my Chinese has never been at the level of that group of the first group of interpreters, but nonetheless, too modest. no, I'm very, I have a lot to be modest about, but he uh, introduced me to you. He said the uh, program director, uh, this woman named Jan Barris is going to be coming up to Cambridge and you could talk to her. So uh, that's how it all began. I can't remember if it was in 73 or 74. And then uh, I got my first interpreting gig, for which I was completely unprepared. And uh, subsequently, I can't remember how many groups I worked for, either from beginning to end or filling in part-time, or after I moved to Berkeley, when they came to the Bay Area, I would often travel or spend a couple of days with them, but I couldn't take time off from my teaching duties. Well, it was a lot of groups. I, I've lost count, but it was actually some of the most important groups that we did. 
And then, of course, you continued on not just being an interpreter or a scholar escort for a group, but you went on our board for many years, and now you're on what is one of my favorite programs that I work on here at the committee is our Public Intellectuals Program. And you've been involved in the advisory committee for that program since its beginning back in 2005. Yeah. I've always been interested in being a public intellectual or using my knowledge of China to reach out to the larger community. And after I moved, I mean, I'd worked with the, for the National Committee, but after I moved to Berkeley, I, I got invited to give talks to various citizens groups. And I really enjoyed that. And I see part of my mission is the major part is educating under, educating students at all different levels, but also working with different community groups. So I'm on the board of the Asian Society of Northern California, which I think is another important vehicle for reaching out to broad, broad parts of the community. And I've, uh, you know, unlike many of my colleagues, I think it's really important to use our knowledge to raise people's understanding or deepen their understanding about China and U.S.-China relations. So the PIP program is something that I also just really honored to have been involved in since the very beginning. And and now it's how many years since the first group? It's 10 years. We're into the last year of our fifth cohort, yeah. and each cohort is two years. So, But so reading, you know, reading comments or listening to people on the radio or seeing them on TV, PIP 2, PIP 3. Right. <laughs> and I think the program has fulfilled its mission and beyond. And I know that uh, over the years we've been concerned, is, are there, is there still talent out there for another cohort? And there's plenty of plenty of really talent, of and I think the talent. pippers that we have have set an set an example and set a high bar, where a high enough bar that other people will say, "How can I get involved yeah. in that program?" So, but speaking of of the scholarship part of it, I know you've done a lot of really interesting things in your lifetime, and one of them was being among the first cohort, or actually the first American student to go to China to study in 1979 as right. part of the exchange under the accord that the two governments signed. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that period of your life? And you told me before that you kept journals, so it must be fascinating to go back and read those journals. So right. first of all, how did you get there? And well, what was so, it like? So I, uh, in the summer of 78, the U.S. and China signed an educational exchange agreement. And um, I thought that I was too old. I was already 30, and I thought I was too old to be included in this program. But again, Professor Vogel said, no, they're looking for older, more mature people to go as the, in the first group, so why don't you apply? So I did, and I was selected. Around Thanksgiving of 1978, December of 78, is when two momentous things. One was the Communist Party held at the third plenum of the 11th Central Committee, where they de decided to f shift the focus of their work away from political struggle to the four modernizations, which included opening to the outside world. The other was around the same time, the middle of December, announcing they were going to establish full diplomatic relations with the U.S. So we had already been selected. There were seven of us in the first group of students and then three scholars. So when we went, it was a very different, uh, already a very different stage in U.S.-China relations. Uh, so we arrived in February of 1979, and I, the other six people all stayed in Beijing. I wanted to go to Shanghai because my dissertation research uh, in Taiwan had been based, had been looking into the emergence of a capitalist class in Taiwan. And the first, uh, after 1949, in the early, in the 1950s, the, the first group of capitalists were refugees from Shanghai. So I wanted to get a feel for their environment. I like the ghosts of Shanghai more than the ghosts of Beijing. Mm -hmm. So I went to Shanghai. Initially, I was going to go back to Beijing because I knew so many people from National Committee trips. <laughs> but then I, just, I knew a lot in Shanghai, too. And I said, well, I'm, 
I really like Shanghai much more. I don't want, I'll go to Beijing's a nice place to visit, right. but I don't want to live there. And so I stayed in Shanghai. So I didn't realize you had that choice. I thought it was sort of an assignment. No, 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 no. It was not assigned. I had cool. free, free will to choose. And uh, I did keep journals. And um, as I get older and, and have younger undergraduates get younger and younger, and I find they know less and less about China, and especially the ones from China, from China know very little about their own country, I, I do so much finger-wagging. You don't know about this. You don't know about that. So I decided, people have said they like my stories. You know, why don't you write a memoir? So I'm, I went back, uh, I spent six weeks in Singapore last summer and going through my journals. And I amazed myself at the detail uh, of my journals and how much I, I was able to remember, uh, reconstruct conversations and so on. And so I've uh, gone through, and the, so this is less about me than it is about me as a catalyst for understanding the way that many people in China were, were thinking about what the reforms might mean for them, how they could take advantage of, of this new opening to the outside world. So this is going to be your, your new book that you're going to write, I guess, in your retirement. In my retirement. Very reti sadly for the students at Berkeley, mm -hmm. this is your last semester yeah, of teaching. My right? last semester. and uh, I mean, I was still plan on hanging around there and uh, doing it. I still have students to, to advise and to finish up. But I want to focus on, on on doing this, and so I've been giving some presentations to get to get feedback on type of questions people ask and how I can how I can develop this. So, if you were looking back now and thinking about your career, both as a teacher and as a public intellectual, a um, couple of questions on that. You, well, sort of what stands out for you? Is there, what makes you most proud about what you've done over the past? 50s, well, I years. think, uh, I mean, actually, my work with the National Committee is one of the things that's made me most proud. I that promise I, I didn't pay you No, to you say didn't. That. You're not holding up a sign that says, say National Committee, say National right. Committee, as you want to do. No, I, I thought of it all by myself. It no, really is, you know, as someone who learned from Chairman Mao, you know, was in college during the Cultural Revolution, uh, the whole idea of unity of theory and practice. And I've mm -hmm. studied this stuff, and I've lived in Taiwan, I've lived in China, I lived in Taiwan during the period of the emergence of the Wai, the opposition movement. And it was right after that that I went to China at the start of their major reforms. And so as a sociologist, thinking about changing social structure and uh, social movements and all of these kinds of things, I've gathered, my timing has been really great. I haven't, it's nothing I could have planned. Mm -hmm. So part of it is you know, trying to share that knowledge with other people and to, uh, to deepen American understanding of, of Chinese societies on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, and I've also spent a fair amount of time in Hong Kong. And uh, so one of the things is, you know, I, 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 on, I, wish, I wish I had done more in the publishing area. Uh, and now that I'm retiring, maybe I'll, 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 I'll catch up on that. But it's also, I just really have really enjoyed sharing my knowledge, training undergraduates, training graduate students, working with community groups, uh, things that I, all across the board, it's, it's hard to pick which one I, enjoy the most. I, that's why I like to think that I've achieved some kind of a balance in, in doing all these different kinds of things. Well, you certainly have. And you're, you're not only a good professional professor, you're very <laughs> knowledgeable, you know your field well, but you do have an enthusiasm, a, a boyish earnestness and enthusiasm about it. And I don't know why, because I should be mind. completely burned out. <laughs> I should be completely burned out, you know. No, but you don't. It's, it's, I don't know why. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I love having you on our PIP advisory committee because the new PIP fellows who are decades younger than you 
uh, I think are really caught up in your enthusiasm oh. for a topic or for a story that you're telling or for something that we're discussing and the, the kinds of questions you ask. So it's been wonderful to have you as part of the committee family. Unfortunately, our time is drawing to a close. So do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave with us? Well, you know, I, on the one hand, I, I have a deep, I've committed my professional life and much of my personal life to dealing with China and spent a lot of time away from my family in, engaged in China-related activities. And uh, I go up and I go down. You know, I can be, uh, be optimistic and be energetic. And when I talk about China, I can be boyishly enthusiastic, uh, but also I try to maintain distance. And, you know, with China, China sort of never fails to disappoint. It's, it's, I can't remember who I'm quoting there, but it's, it's just when you think things could be really going in a positive direction, uh, something blindsides you. And one of the things I've learned over the decades of dealing with China is what's referred to as show and fang, and these, this sort of yin-yang kind of cycles of show means restricting and fang means liberalizing. And I was in, lucky enough to live in China. 1979 was the period of fang, and there was a great deal of enthusiasm and optimism. And then over the course of the 1980s, it's not been a linear development of constant opening. There's been backing and filling. I think the direction continues to be in the, in, in a, towards opening, even though right now in the, in, uh, the middle of uh, what, whatever year it is, 2018, uh, things look pretty grim. I don't, I don't think it's the end. And because I work with young Chinese uh, at Berkeley, uh, I work, I've known Ch Chinese uh, over the years, um, China operates on many different levels. You know, when you've got the official level in Beijing, and one of the things that PIP does and I've tried to do in my research is get out of Beijing and not, I don't work in elite levels anyway, even though I've met a lot of elites thanks to the National Committee. But it's through traveling around, through being, working with students and so on, that you see that China operates on many different levels. And there's an expression I learned many years ago, which means that there's a difference, a distinction between the inner and the outer meaning you, you keep your thoughts to yourself and you try to figure out what you can share with the other world, the, the outside world. And a lot of Chinese life is based on performing, mm -hmm. which is a sociological phenomenon, the impression you give. Is you try to get people to think about you in a certain way and you figure out what I have to say, what are the cues, how do I strategize. But your own thoughts you keep largely to yourself until you find someone you think you can trust. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate, I think, that I've won the trust of a lot of Chinese who unloaded on me, which can be pretty distressing, too, is what you think about what people, the, the environment, the constriction that they have to, the restrictions they have to live under, that they can't be their authentic self or their true self, except in very, very limited ways. But uh, so I can't, you know, I just think that the, the, the direction still has to, thinking about the long sweep, as long as I've been involved in this within 1974, the Wushu, when, you know, everybody dressed alike, when you asked them what you know, you only think about American literature, oh, I love Mark Twain. You know, I mean, they all had the same answer, and <laughs> there was no diversity. And, you know, now it's sort of like herding cats. Is there, there Sun Yat-sen was right. The Chinese people are a sheet of loose sand. Yeah, there's no problem with individual, individualism. Right. Well, I'm delighted to be able in this era and time of uh, great uncertainty about the relationship and where it's going great uncertain in our own country and how we relate to our government very and true, to yeah. our fellow citizens. And from what I hear from people who are 
speaking to friends and colleagues in China, of also a lot of ferment and uncertainty about what's happening and what's going on and what direction the country will take. So I like you placing this into the, the Fang and show continuum. And um, it's great that you have an optimism that the Fang will yeah. eventually win out. We should live so long. <laughs> <laughs> we will be hopeful that that is yeah, the future. Can I knock, knock on wood? Knock on wood. <laughs> knock on wood. So thank you very much, Tom. Always it's a pleasure a to see you, Jane. talking to you. And we look forward, now that you're going to be retiring, to being able to call on you even more to work with National Committee Happy programs. to do it. Happy okay. to do it. Yep. Thanks so much. You bet.